You know, I am a, uh, I am a creature of, of habit. I love routines. I don't particularly care for when things break my routines. My whole life, people have told me, you just need to be more flexible. I say they just need to be more rigid. And so I, I love holidays, but, but holidays, they, they wreak havoc in my life and my, my love and, 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 and that child's love of, of routine, right? I've got my routine. We're, we're making our way through Ephesians. Everybody's like, oh, I love Ephesians. It's the greatest thing ever. I'm like, we're out of it for like a month. We got like the Lord's Supper, we got a couple other services, we got a prayer service, and then we come back into it, and I say we're in Ephesians, and you guys say, I thought we were in Philippians. I say, friend, you haven't been here in a very long time. We did Philippians my first year here, but we are in the book of Ephesians, and to that end, allow me to kind of catch you up, invite you back into the routine that I love so much, and maybe you can make it your routine as well. You'll remember Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, and he's gone through, and he said a number of things to them. But, but, but really, in there in 3 through 14, he lays out this beautiful argument that God is creating worshipers, that he is to be praised because he's done a variety of things. Now, a lot of people, they read 3 through 14, and they walk away, and they enter into this discussion of soteriology or salvation. They enter into the discussion of election or when God saved people. But I'm firmly convinced that Paul didn't write 3 through 14 so the people in Ephesus could sit back and say... Well, this is where I found, find myself doctrinally. This is, this is how I developed this doctrine. I, I'm firmly convinced that he wrote 3 through 14 so that people would look at it and say, you know, before God did anything, he moved in salvation. And, and, and that because of that and the reflection upon that, they would worship God. Look here how he started back in verse 3. Let me remind you. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything begins and ends with praise of God. Amen. Everything begins and ends with praise of God. Now look, he goes all the way through this. He says God planned it this way. He sent Jesus and he brought it to be this way. And then there in the end, in verse 13, he said, and now the Holy Spirit has sealed you in this way. Now look how he ends this whole section here in verse 14. He goes through and he says the Holy Spirit has sealed you. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And how does he end it? He says to the praise of his glory. Salvation is a work of God accomplished by Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And what it produces in us is this deep sense of thanks and praise to God. Amen? Man, some of you are still asleep from Christmas. They say turkey has tryptophan in it. And, you know, when you, when you eat turkey, it makes you sleepy. And some of you, like, you must have been chowing down on a turkey leg in the hallway because you are still asleep. When I say amen, you respond with... Now you're all awake, and the person beside you, they were sleeping. That's rude. That's rude. Let them sleep. Wake them up when we go to leave, though. That's awkward. All right, so he goes through that. He says, look, all this stuff should resound in praise and glory to God. And then we come into verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love toward the saints, I haven't stopped praying about you. Paul effectively says to them, ever since I heard that you guys believed in Jesus, ever since I heard of how your faith was increasing in Jesus, I haven't stopped praying about you. I continue to bring your name before the Father. I continue to ask that he does things for you, that he changes you in accordance with what his word says, that he brings you into one heart, which is a reflection of who he is. Now, he's done that. Now, what we see here in 15 through 23 is this beautiful section, and we're going to take it really slowly. 
Now look, in 16 he says, I don't cease to give thanks, to you, uh, thanks about you, remembering you my prayers, that the God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may do what? May give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying specifically that they come to know God more by God's supernatural work in their lives. He's praying specifically that they come to know God more, that they know more about God through God doing a work supernaturally in their lives. Now, what we're going to look at today in 18 and 19 is a continuation of that very prayer. Now, look at this. Read 18 and 19 with me. He says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Man, this is jam-packed. Now, if, if we were going to take this as one whole section, then clearly we would continue to work our way through verse 23. But I tell you what, nobody wants to be here for three hours while we do that. Nobody wants to be here for three hours while we do that. My voice won't hold up for three hours while we do that. So very carefully, what we're going to do is I'm going to present to you 18 and 19. You're going to go home this week, and in my imagination, you're going to sit, and you're going to ruminate on that, and you're going to cook on that, and you're going to read that over and over again. And sometime about Wednesday, you're going to say, ah, I get it, I get it. And then Thursday's going to wake up, and you're like, what was that? I should have written that down. Take good notes. You're going to need these Thursday morning when you wake up. Now look at this, what he says here. He's been praying for them. And in verse 18, he, he prays something specific. He's praying that they will have their eyes of their heart enlightened. He says, look, I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. He finished 17, and he said he wanted this revelation, the knowledge of God to be working in their lives, right? And now he comes around, and he says that you need to have the eyes of your heart brightened. What is Paul praying for? Paul is, is, is really praying, if you want to break it down a different way, Paul is praying that they might have spiritual insight. Now, we, we find ourselves praying for uh, each of ourselves as individuals. We pray for our families. We pray for all those around us. And typically, what we find ourselves praying for more often, and certainly the older we get, is health. We pray for the health of those around us. And this is certainly a good thing to pray for. Paul instructs certain churches to pray for the health of, of individuals. But look what he starts off and he prays here for. He is praying for their spiritual insight. He's praying that they would be burdened with our understanding of who God is. Are we burdened for this? Are we burdened for our spiritual insight? Are you burdened? Do you find yourself when you open up the pages of your Bible thinking to yourself, praying to yourself, man, I wish I knew more about this God. Man, I wish I knew more about him. I wish I understood him more. Or do you simply read it and say, you know, I can't wait till next Sunday to open up that book again. That sucker is a page turner. Every Sunday I find myself turning pages. You see, Paul starts off and he says, this is what I want you to understand. What I want is that God would give you spiritual insight and wisdom. And then he comes down here in verse 18 and he says that God would open the eyes of your heart to enlightenment. Hmm. Now, why do you think he does that? Why do you think Paul is preoccupied with wanting these men and women in Ephesus and God through the power of the Holy Spirit? Why do you think God is preoccupied with wanting us to have the eyes of our heart enlightened? Is it so that we can boast with wisdom is, is so that we can go to Bible drills and blow people away that when you get into the minor prophets that you don't mix them up? 
Do you think God is, is, is primarily preoccupied with, with, with this, this deep sense of worry and anxiety that when your friends wax eloquent about all the, the different T-I-O-N words, the shun words of, of, of election, of, of predestination, of soteriology, pneumatology, and all of these types of ologies that you just lay back and you lay them waste with your theological eloquence? Do you think that's what Paul's getting at there? That, that what he is asking for is that God blow them away, that he superimposed them with biblical knowledge and wisdom and understanding of how all these doctrines blow out so they can lay men and women low. Do you think that's what he's getting at? Well, look what he says here. Paul is primarily praying three things. He says, look, God, I want you to open their heart. I want you to expand what they know about you. And the first thing he says is, hmm, the first thing he says is, I want you to have your hearts, the eyes of your heart enlightened, number one, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Think about that. Of all the things Paul could have written there, of all the things that he might have said there, the first thing Paul addresses when he says, he says, Chris, I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. Corey, when, 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 when we apply this to you and he says, look, I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. Ben, when he applies it to you, he says, look, I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. And then he turns and he says, the first thing I want you to have your heart, the eyes of your heart enlightened to produce is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Man, what this indicates to us is that this is something we need. This isn't something that is automatic. This isn't something that is given. What we need is to have a recognition. We need to meditate on the hope to which he has called us. So what is this hope to which he has called us? Well, flip over, friends, to Colossians 3, 4. Colossians 3, 4, he, he, he talks about this a little bit. And he talks about the ultimate realization of this hope. He talks about the ultimate realization of this hope. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The ultimate realization of the hope that we have in Christ is final redemption in his coming, in his setting all things right. The ultimate hope that we have in Christ isn't that just things work better for us here and now. Like some of you hope that when you wake up on Wednesday morning that the weatherman is just radically wrong today. I saw the low is going to look like something like 18 degrees. We don't live in North Dakota. That is not right. So some of you, your hope and what you set up and you establish is, oh, praise God. Oh, man, I hope this, I just hope this weather comes out to be wrong. Now, now Kelly and them, they're like, God, 18 degrees. Crank up the propane. Yes. Yes, God. That's just silliness. Like, that's not what he's talking about when he's talking about our hope. He's talking about your current and present position in Christ, your current, and, and as it heads towards the future, and then as it is ultimately realized with the return of Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now, look what he says here. He says that he has called you. It happened in the past. Now, as we read through 3 through 14, as we worked through that as a, as a church together, we recognized that God called us when? In eternity past. In eternity past, humanity is saved in Christ. And what does Paul say about that? He says we should praise, honor, and glorify God because of it. 
In eternity past, humanity is saved where we're saved in Christ. And then it happened in past. Now it happened individually in an individual's past. For me, when I was seven years old, I got saved. I was, I was fearfully and wonderfully saved. I, I quit being a drug dealer and a murderer and all these awful things and gave my life to Jesus. You know, those of you that believe that, I mean, the, the bad stuff. I wasn't just a, a horrible person, but the Bible tells me that even in that state as a seven-year-old who occasionally took things from his older brother, who occasionally lied to his parents, who occasionally did things that were wrong, that, that my heart didn't beat for God, my heart beat for someone else, my heart beat for me, but that God came in and he did a supernatural work of salvation in my heart and he made that plan that he established in eternity past real for me in time when I was seven years old. And now almost 30 years later, I'm living in the present reality of that hope. And each of you or many of you have that same story. That at some point in the past, the work that God laid down in eternity past came to be real for you in a moment in time. And you surrendered yourself in the past. And you're continuing to surrender yourself today under the reality of that hope. Amen? You're continuing to submit yourself to the reality of that hope because you want to see that hope continue. Now this is kind of what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul writes and he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. We are to live out our Christian faith. The hope that we were given when he called us is continuing to persevere today. And he calls us to walk in the reality of that. Now look what he says here. He says to continue to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now who, which God is this? He is the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Just as he has called you in the past, he calls you still. Just as he has called you in the past, he calls you still, and he will ultimately realize that, just as we read in Colossians 3, 4, just as you could read in Titus 2, 13, when the hope of glory appears. When the hope of glory appears and Jesus shows up in all his brilliance, and he sets all things right, our final hope is ultimately realized. Now, Paul prays first off here, that having the eyes of their heart enlightened, that what? That they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Man, some of us have this horrible habit of setting our hopes on things too low. We recognize that, that God does work of salvation in Jesus Christ, that he alone can change our hearts, that he alone can make all these things right. But when it comes to our marriage, when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our families, that, that's really the hope that we want satisfied right here and now. Like, I get that. I see that. In the midst of loss, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of having family members in the hospital, in the midst of having all these things go wrong and having seemingly nothing go right, the temptation is to set our hope on things that don't ultimately, finally satisfy. But what Paul gives us an indication here is that all those hopes take a back seat, that all those hopes are minor and seemingly insignificant compared to the ultimate hope of having it in Jesus Christ. Now look what he prays here for the second thing. He wants us to have to, an understanding of the hope in which he's called us. And look here. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And I mean, that's just a lot, of, a, a lot of words put together in a really small section. Paul wants you to understand 
God would have us understand today that you are loved. That you're loved. Do, do, do you believe that? Now this is an amazing thing. Paul's writing to a group that they didn't have it all worked out. They weren't perfect. Some of you suppose that because of the mistakes you've made this past week, because Christmas morning when, when your kids came in or Christmas morning and you, and you turned and you yelled at people around you or you gave out a few uh, really hearty and glorious bah humbugs, that because of that, that somehow God loves you less. That because of the things you did in 2014 and the things that maybe you hoped to do in 2015, that God loves you less. But look what he says here. He wants us to know what? The hope in which he has called you. That is the surety of your salvation. He wants you to walk in the reality of that. 1 Thessalonians. But look carefully at what he says here. Now, back in verse 14 of chapter 1, he talked about our inheritance. What is that? He said the Holy Spirit sealed us and he is the guarantee of our, of your and mine, of our inheritance until we take possession of it. Salvation is ours. The Holy Spirit is keeping that safe until we take final possession of it the time we die or Christ returns. But look what he does here. He turns and he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Whose inheritance is he talking about there? God's inheritance. He recognized that in salvation, God is making for himself a people holy and precious. Why? Is it because that you passed some type of merit test at salvation because God submitted it to you? You answered all of them right. You bubbled everything in perfectly on the Scantron. You submitted it into the machine. It spit it back out and you said, oh golly gee, I'm a Christian. He reckoned you righteous in Christ. It's not that you did anything right. It's that you recognized that you were doing everything wrong. And that Jesus did the one right thing for you that you could never hope to accomplish on your own. That Jesus did the one right thing for you in your life that, that no amount of perfect kids, paid off house, and beautiful marriage could ever hope to accomplish for you. Jesus affords you the opportunity to be reckoned righteous in as much as you believe in him. Inasmuch as you believe in Jesus, you're reckoned righteous, and you become God's inheritance. I've never inherited anything. I've got flat feet. I got that from my grandfather. But like, I'm talking like money and, and good stuff. I've never really inherited anything. I've uh, only got one relative that, that really has very much money, and he'll probably leave it all to Greenpeace. I don't know. He's a little bit of a tree hugger this much. He's got a house in California, you know. And so I've never really 
had the opportunity to receive anything at a will. In my, in my mind, it's always like the movies where you sit down and you've got this lawyer and he's reading the will and you know, you've got this jilted ex-wife over here, you've got this child over here, and then you've got this lowly and unsuspecting person. I've always thought this would be me. And so I'm just kind of sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, I just loved him. He was such a good guy. I didn't really know him very well. But I just, you know, you can imagine, I just loved him. He's such a good guy. And then all of a sudden he's like, and we leave $5 billion to Matthew. And everybody's like, hey, we didn't, one, we didn't know he had $5 billion. Two to him, two to him, really, really him. Like, what about the ex-wife? What about the son? What about all these people? And I'm over here in this chair, and it's like, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, brother, can you read that again? Because I didn't hear you. I've gone deaf, blind, and incontinent all at one time. And he reads it again. He's like, five billion dollars to Matthew Beasley. And I'm just like, <laughs> I've never had the joy of receiving a good inheritance outside of faith in Jesus Christ. We have this glorious inheritance that we await the full realization of, but what we read here isn't this amazing prize. It's not this amazing thing that God has set aside for us. What we read here is that we are his inheritance. What we read here is that we are his inheritance. And it's not that God has settled for second best. It's not that God has settled for some crummy prize, some some cast aside. It's not that he received the moth-eaten rug that his great aunt Bessie left for him. What he receives is described as the riches of his glorious inheritance. Read this with me. Read this with me. He has called us to this. What are the riches of of his glorious inheritance. What is the abundant wealth? What is the inexhaustible supply? What is the amazingly indescribable? What is the overcoming? What is is more than we can ever fathom? What is this? It is us. It is us. Do you get that? Do you see that? What this produces on us is this tremendous sense of not, absolutely, God's got me. He's got me. It's not that Brandon hears this. Or that Christy hears this and she says, well, that's right, he's got me. And I'm, I'm taking up all the slack for all these other people over there. But what this produces in us is this tremendous sense of humility that the God of the universe describes you in his receiving of you as being the riches of his gloriousness. Do you get that? Do you see the tremendous degree, the sense to which you are loved in January of 2015? That as you sit here today, as you proclaim Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, that he looks at you intently, that he recognizes that you, that, that Glenn, that Linda, he recognizes that you've been, he recognizes that you can, he recognizes that you, as you sit in this pew, as you take in the oxygen that he produces, that you are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Are you not laid waste by this? This is one of these passages that as I studied it this week, I came to this and I read it and I just said, Paul, the audacious nature in which you present this. How crazy is this? That the God of the universe, the one who sets all of these things, the one who looks at his son and reckons him precious and gives us his righteousness, looks at you and I and says, I am blessed to receive them. And I gotta be honest with you. It's not because y'all are great people. Tom laughs, he gets it. 
The rest of you awkwardly chuckle. Some of you honestly suppose that you're doing God a favor. If that's ever a thought that crosses your mind, that you think in salvation that you're doing God a favor, or if you think that in refusing salvation from God, that you're doing him a favor. God has not done favors, friend. God is the only one who is able to do a true favor for humanity. He does that in the person of Jesus Christ and extending to them the opportunity for forgiveness in his son and in his shed blood, which covers all of the terrible things that you could ever do and are currently doing. God looks at you, he bids you come, and he bids you come in the shed blood of his son. And he extends it to you, whether you receive it and are glad of it, or you recognize it and reject it. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is available to all, but is only effective for those that receive. He doesn't save you apart from your repentance. He doesn't save you apart from your confession. He doesn't save you apart from your faith in him. But still he bids you come. For all those that come, he looks at us. And the beauty that he lavishes on Jesus, he sees in us. And he's got this description of his inheritance, which he describes and he's describing us, guys. And he says that we are the riches of his glorious inheritance. And that's just amazing. Now look here in 19. This is the last of the three deals here. Paul prayed. He wants the eyes of our heart enlightened so we know the hope. He wants the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we know where we stand and how he sees us. The riches of his glorious inheritance. And then lastly, he wants the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we will also know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great mind. Now what Paul describes here when he says the, what does it say? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? In Greek philosophy, they had this understanding that you have the ability to exert power, and then you have actual power exerted. So he's talking on both sides of this. And the first thing he says that what you need to know and by having the eyes of your heart enlightened it, enlightened it gives you the ability to understand or get close to like that you can recognize something that's immeasurable do, 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 you, do you see the seeming paradox there do you see how this works Paul wants us to have our the eyes of our heart enlightened he wants us to grow in wisdom so that we could recognize something as being immeasurable he wants you to, to grow in wisdom to supernaturally grow in your understanding of God so that you might stand back and say I can't fathom it. There's wisdom there. There's wisdom in rightly recognizing that God can't be quantified. He can't be quantified in the way that we would say, I pumped 19.56 gallons of gas into my car yesterday and it cost me a whole whole, lot less money than it cost me two months ago. He can't be quantified in this regard. What he wants us to recognize here by having the eyes of our heart enlightened is that we would recognize what is the immeasurable greatness of his ability to demonstrate power towards who? Towards humanity? 
towards Paul himself, towards just those in Ephesus? No, Paul writes, he says, towards us who believe. Paul had been moving and operating in this realm of, I'm praying that you would understand these things for you in Ephesus. Now he's turning, he says, what I want you to recognize is the tremendous greatness, the immeasurable greatness of his power that is demonstrated towards us. Us who believe. God's power is moving and working in the lives of all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, those in whom the life, those in whom Jesus has done a work of regeneration in their lives. Hmm. This, this ability to exert power, we find, is brought out in actuality. Look at this here. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, to what degree? According to the working of his great might. And what you're going to read next week and what we'll see in 20 through 23 is the the demonstration of God's might. The demonstration of God's might isn't in creation. Many of us think of the, the most amazing thing God has done is creation. That in the beginning, God spoke and it came to be. Some of us think that the most amazing thing God did was, was to create the, the heavens or the earth or, or, or the seas or the dry land or, or man and woman or to keep man and woman together or to keep some of you married together. You think that the most amazing God, thing God has ever done is to, is to preserve this, to keep our, our ecosystem, our way of life together, to preserve our country, to preserve your marriage, some of your cars. Like you think that's the most amazing thing God has done. You work, walk out in the morning, you're like, oh, oh God. Please help it to fire in line. And it fires up. You're like, amen. That's amazing. You should, you should talk to somebody about that. But look here. He says the immeasurable greatness of his might. Verse 20. Let's just take a peek at it. According to the working of his great might. And when did he display this? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ages to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The most tremendous display of power that God ever gave us to marvel at is the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it is because of that saving work of Jesus Christ that we are able to have the eyes of our heart enlightened. And that in having the eyes of our heart enlightened, we recognize the hope that he's called us to. We recognize our privileged place as his inheritance. And because of the saving work of Jesus Christ and having the eyes of our heart enlightened, we're able to marvel at the immeasurable greatness of his demonstration of power in ever sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins in the first place. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us.